You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. So much happening in crypto. There was a flash crash of Bitcoin when there was rumors that the Bitcoin ETF might not happen. But there's a lot of other news, a lot of other catalysts for big moves in crypto. I brought on my good friend and super crypto expert, Omid Malakhan. Omid is a professor of crypto at Columbia Business School. He's written two books, The Story of the Blockchain and his most recent book, which is a great book, I highly recommend it, Re-Architecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. He also was one of the first people to help guide Citigroup on the entire the entire largest bank in the world on the topic of crypto. So we talked about everything from the Bitcoin ETFs to the convergence of crypto and AI to the Ethereum upgrade uh, and all sorts of other catalysts for Bitcoin and crypto in general. So a lot of topics. Here goes. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Uh, just 
doing trying to do a lot of writing uh like bite-sized writing about pertinent topics in crypto and then uh planning for the upcoming semester where enrollment in my class is once again maxed out after a one semester hiatus where it wasn't that's funny like all it takes is for crypto to start having like an like like crypto you know bitcoin was up 144% last year so that means you're going to have students the year before uh bitcoin's a fad like no one cares anymore yes with the caveat that that only impacted like 20% of enrollment cuz i i actually i imagine the types of students who just want to learn about the most cutting edge thing probably were opting to learn about ai instead of crypto but yeah. uh market forces and animal spirits always help well it's interesting like Crypto's a situation where the reality has not yet caught up with the hype. Like there's lots of things that need to happen for crypto to be a mature industry. But AI, there's the exact opposite sort of arbitrage. The hype has not caught up with the reality. Like AI is actually much greater than the hype of it. And the hype's pretty high. That's interesting. I, I will say, so I spent a lot of time actually last year over the summer during the calm time before the current rally began just thinking about what was it about crypto that was fundamentally so challenging and confusing and ultimately disruptive and uh one of the things i realized is that if you sort of list all the major technological things that have happened in our lives in the last 20 years crypto is the only one that nobody saw coming and so if you think about that, like the internet mobile, AI, all you got to do is go back and watch or read science fiction from 50 or 70 years ago. And, you know, like the 2001, a space odyssey, uh, where the AI becomes self-aware and kills people. That was 1968, I think. Right. And there, there are definitely science fiction books where people are watching TV on their phones, you know, from like the 1950s. Yeah. And, and you know, like Star Trek, they had mobile communication and everything. Right. And, Crypto, I will say there there was um, an alternative currency in the book, The Crying of Lot 49. It was uh, Thomas Pynchon's first uh, novel. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so it was like 1961, 62. It wasn't a digital currency, but it was basically a global currency to avoid that. Was, it was more of a conspiracy kind of currency. Like there was this secret concern con, uh, currency to avoid all the global ones so you can transact with other you know, Illuminati or whatever, uh, without countries knowing. I'll have to add that to my reading list because I didn't know about that. But you mentioned digital currency. I actually think it's kind of amazing that apparently nobody ever really thought about the future of money. Because um, even if you take like the two most prominent futuristic space-based sci-fi universes that we have in the West, right? You have the Star Trek world and the Star Wars world. Yeah. In the Star Trek universe, they've just magically don't need money anymore. They've achieved right. some. Well, as Peter Thiel pointed out, when asked whether he favors Star Trek and Star Wars, he said Star Wars, of course. Star Trek's like a, a Marxist fantasy. Right. But even in the Star Wars world, like somehow, despite having faster than light travel and lightsabers and the force, when it comes to money, they've gone back in time to like commodity money. Right, that, and there's also a there's like there, there's there there was some currency like Harris, you know Han Solo, as Peter Thiel again pointed out, 
the entire plot premise is based on, in, to some extent, this bounty Jabba the Hutt has on a debt that Han Solo hasn't paid back. Yeah. So the, the ideas of money are all there, but no one really thought like, hey, if technology is going to transform how we travel, how we communicate, where we source energy from, might it also transform money? Um, so all of which is to say, I think with crypto, its arrival is sort of like orthogonal to the perceived path of history, which I think is one reason why it creates a lot of confusion and controversy. I'll, I'll I'll contradict that a little bit, or I'll push back a little bit in that every evolution of money, I would say, was unexpected. So, you know, gold as a currency, there was thousands of years where they had to kind of figure out we need one common currency, perhaps a metal that is hard to or difficult to mine, and we'll use combination of metal, silver, perhaps bronze, nickel. And so, you know, that was an evolution that took hundreds or thousands of years to expect. But then the advent of money backed by gold, that like paper money backed by gold was an accident. It was just sort of like people would deposit, where, where do you put all your gold? You put it with the goldsmith and then he would give you an IOU and those IOUs, heck, I might even have learned about this in one of your books. Yeah. You know, pe people <laughs> with those IOUs would, would, transact and that was sort of like the first form of paper money yeah no i actually fully agree with the idea i'd never thought about it that let's say that it's true that all major evolutions in money were very much unexpected and nobody saw it coming i don't think that contradicts uh what i'm saying about crypto as compared to something like ai like ai is something that's been seeping into our lives Ever like you know, NPC characters in video games were a form of AI, and that goes back to what the 1980s. Yeah, and speech uh, recognition is AI, and that's yeah. been around since the 90s, and computer vision has been around since the OOS. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, going back to your point about hype versus reality, I think it's very possible that with AI, the hype hasn't caught up to the reality but maybe part of the reason is because like people are like well yeah you know i've known this is coming uh, and it's finally here but that's different from crypto where people like me are like it's finally here and they're like what are you talking about i've never even thought about that yeah it's 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 interesting like i think ai people are amazed by it particularly like the, the consumer version which is chat gpt and now they're trying to figure out the many use cases like you know, you can look at every industry or aspect of your life and figure out where AI could perhaps make it more efficient. And that's a process that's still happening, which means, you know, in other words, there are use cases that are obvious that have not been thought of or developed yet. And then there are use cases that are unobvious that we haven't even begun on yet. And, or maybe people have, but it's, it's not as well known. And so that's what, and that's where there's opportunity. So whenever there's a, uh, Whenever something's growing exponentially, say, but there's some distance between the hype and the reality in either direction, you have opportunity. So with crypto, I think a one problem crypto had, and this reminds me of the internet in 1992, the one problem crypto had is that the initial users were were obviously extremely tech savvy. They were they were tech people. Yeah. And tech people don't like when the mainstream is using their toys. And so I, I found like in 27, 2018, when I was starting to write a lot about crypto, 
uh, I found there was a lot of resentment among people who quote unquote hodled. And, you know, they had their own vocabulary, they had their own subculture. They resented someone like me trying to explain crypto to everyone, not in every case, but in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think that's actually still true in some corners of crypto to this day. I mean, the other thing that's really changed from 2017 is that in 2017, there was really, there was Bitcoin and Ethereum was this new thing that people thought was interesting, but we're not sure what it would turn into. Now the, the, the um, you know, like the bucket of what we call crypto has massively expanded to- Yeah, and, and also, uh, Crypto initially, up until recently, and this is to your point on Ethereum, crypto, the only use case or the main use case was thought of as currency. But now I can see two equally large, the currency use case is huge because it, 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 when you look more deeply at it, the global payment system around the world and currencies around the world are, are flawed in the same way that gold was flawed and needed paper money backed by gold, in the same way that barter was flawed that needed gold for a, a common currency. Um, in the same way that paper money backed by gold was flawed as countries increased their debt. And so they needed paper currency backed by kind of the goodwill of the country. So, so, so the payment, current payment system is flawed like around the world. The, the whole uh, you know, international wiring system, the fact that banks are intermediaries and there's all the typical problems there. So I, I think currency is a big use case and that was the initial use case for, for crypto, but now equally big is decentralized computing. And we're seeing that with the growth of tokens like Render or, or Akash or even BitTensor, which is used on large AI models and uh, uh, marketing, which we have not begun to see the use for the marketing use case because there aren't enough users yet. So I think that's another thing that has helped crypto is that Ethereum has opened the door to many more use cases. Yeah, and I, I know uh, very smart people who tell me that the actual killer app of a decentralized cloud computer in the sky, which is one way to think about Ethereum and blockchains like it, we haven't even seen it yet. Like sure, DeFi is great, stable coins are great, NFT is great, you can even use it to, um, you know, the the projects that you listed are part of what the industry now calls DPIN or decentralized physical infrastructure, which certainly for compute rendering, but also for telecommunications itself mm. uh, and countless other applications, you know, hardware, uh, sorry, just cloud storage, like with projects like Filecoin. Um, so yeah, I think those are going to develop and, and become a uh, important part of the economy. But you know, to your point about the internet in the mid '90s, very few people saw what it is today. Right. Like even in 1995, no one knew that the web was going to be this commercial medium. Like mm. we could, you couldn't figure out: is this an artistic medium where you can do your interesting hypertext projects? Like people doubted. Then people said, "Oh, maybe it's good for marketing. We'll put like a pamphlet of our company as our website." And then people eventually realize, like, people would say, no one's going to put their credit card on the internet. And, but then people realized, of course, that became the main use was, was commercial use. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it's always fun brainstorming about what sort of like the dark horses are in crypto. Um, 
one thing that I'm very bullish on is we call it digital identity or decentralized digital identity, but that's not really doing it justice. Um, this something that is fundamentally important, but none of us ever think about is how do we establish who we are throughout life and in the economy? Like what makes you James Altucher? It's some combination of government documents, like literally your birth certificate, your driver's right. license, uh, some, and then you have privately issued credentials, like your college degree, for example. Uh, then you have modern, more modern things like your social network, your social graph on the internet, which includes this podcast, your writing, LinkedIn, et cetera. Um, and then even things that are tougher to nail down, like there are companies that probably have an understanding of you based on your consumption patterns in the past. And maybe right. there are social groups that you loosely belong to. I think... I'm actually confident that there is a future where blockchain becomes the medium through which all of our identity credentials are issued, stored, verified, and transferred. I agree. I th and I think even one step further, I think a block might be the smallest unit by which data is transmitted. It's like the atoms of data in AI models. So this is the convergence of, of crypto and AI is when... You know, like the New York Times is suing OpenAI right now because they're like, hey, you trained ChatGPT in part on New York Times articles. Certainly that's the, the worst part of ChatGPT is those particular articles that they were trained on. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at some point, we're going to want to know what our sources are, particularly if they're sensitive, like data about my identity, for instance. Yeah. I, I, the, uh, the intersection of AI and crypto was such a hot topic last summer. And I, I think... There is some future state where what you just discussed is there in terms of using blockchain to figure out what data train which model. And then also the beauty of blockchain is you can also, if there's going to be compensation, then you can also use the same infrastructure for it. That one though is really, if, if you sit down and think long and hard about how you would physically pull that off, it's many years away. And I think there's not as much interest as people would say. Like there are people who are like activists about this and I feel like they're the only ones who truly care about it. Yeah, well, the New York Times care because if there is going to be financial compensation, they would get a lot. You know, like do I care because maybe my books and blogs and tweets combined could earn me like eight cents um, you know, in aggregate? This is actually something that came up when people were working on decentralized social media. And one of the arguments was like, oh, it's not fair that Facebook gets all the revenues from our content, which is fair. I actually agree with that. As you know, in my last book, I have a whole chapter on this. But then as far as motivation to try blockchain-based social media is concerned, part of the problem is like the average person's Facebook footprint is probably worth eight bucks or something. It's not like it would be life-changing money. It's when you aggregate all of that together, um, that it makes a difference. Yeah. Um, but all of that said, I actually think there's a couple of low-hanging fruit for the intersection of AI and blockchain, some of which is already being used. And you actually, when you mentioned decentralized compute, I only learned about this recently. Um, there is a problem that 
certain kinds of AI models have, if what they're doing is controversial, they get kicked out of the legacy web two big tech cloud. Like if you want to do AI models for adult content or something, um, you know, like Microsoft doesn't want that. <laughs> right. Um, so apparently there are already projects that say, well, if we can't go use a centralized uh, cloud for you know, GPU power to train our model, we need to go use the decentralized one. So, and that already exists. There are already token enabled projects for decentralized GPU compute. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, You want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. 
immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. A while ago, I pitched the idea of a decentralized uh, token for computing large language models. So it would be much, you know, Microsoft or OpenAI took three years running on a supercomputer or Microsoft Azure supercomputer before Mm -hmm. it really was finished. And the VC said, if you come up with this, we'll fund it. But then I found out there's already tokens, of course, doing this. I don't know if they're widely used, but they're they're interesting to look at, and they're it's kind of the the I think that's the biggest convergence right now of crypto and AI. Actually, that's right. I agree, um, and I would say second, which I don't think is live yet beyond like a proof of concept, but I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now it's actually being live used. Um, AI and and these LLMs create this massive authentication problem which is that like anybody can have chat gpt write an article that sounds like it's the new york times or whatever authoritative source that there is and it's really hard to differentiate um and that's something you can do today like any media outlet or even you could already say like hey i am going to start um doing something as trivial as uh, every time i write an article I'm going to put a hash of it on the blockchain that way. And, and then I'll sign it with, with a wallet that's been affiliated with me. I'm going to tell you this is my wallet. We need a little bit more infrastructure, but all the technology we need to do this today is already there where you could literally have a browser plugin that as you go and use different sources of information on the internet, it's constantly pinging digital fingerprints of articles, videos, podcast episodes, whatever, that are stored on chain somewhere. And it's telling you like, yes, this is original. This is authentic. I think people are so scared of the whole like fake news problem of AI that there's an impetus there to for people to invest time and money to build these solutions. Well, and there's it brings up the point also, and I actually want to talk about a lot of the current news, like Bitcoin ETFs, blah blah blah. But this is fascinating. There's there's an interesting point in that this is where the opportunities right now exceed the um, what's actually out there. Um, mm. For instance, what if I want to put on a blockchain basically private information about myself and have a model trained on that information? So so. Yes, 
ChatGPT has read all my books, has read all my blog posts, and so on. But that's because it's public information. What right. if I wanted to basically record all of my phone conversations, all of my actually on the street conversations, all of my emails, like everything that's private to really make a chatbot or, or, or an AI virtual assistant for myself. That can't be done at the moment. And there's not a private way to do it, but blockchain becomes, I kind of think that's going to happen for, for everybody at some point, or at least we'll have the option to do it. And that seems like an opportunity for convergence as well. Related to what you were just saying. Yeah. The one thing that we need a little bit more development of, I believe, to have solutions like that uh, is advanced cryptography. Because you want to be able to share your data in a way that doesn't expose your data. Right. But blockchain is, you can't break a, a block on Bitcoin unless you have quantum computing. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that like, you can do it now where you could send all your data to a company and then they can train a model on it. But now the problem is the company has all your data. You've exposed your entire life to a corporation. So with... Right. That's why if everything was done essentially the way contract law works on, on blockchain, then I think there's ways to protect your data. Well, you can... And I'm getting out on a ledge here in terms of the extent of my knowledge, but with zero knowledge proofs and i believe even better homomorphic encryption uh you can have a situation where you could train models on encrypted data so you don't have to worry about exposing your data in order to use it to train to a model um it's just we need a little bit more development because cryptography is a technology i don't think people understand this and like any technology it has a uh, development curve, but you can accelerate it with money and resources. And one of the great contributions that the cryptocurrency industry has made to the rest of society is that it has brought in significant capital to developing and advancing cryptography, the benefits of which will be enjoyed far beyond the cryptocurrency industry. And we're already seeing this with zero-knowledge proofs because thanks to older projects like Zcash, which was a privacy-preserving coin, that's really fallen off the map. But also um, Zcash. Believe me, I know. I'm, invest I'm a seed investor of Zcash. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe maybe too far ahead of its time. Um, but there's but also like Ironfish is kind of like a revised, revamped version of it. Okay, I'm not familiar, um, but. All of them, right? Like whatever Ironfish is, there's somebody whose job it is is to do research and develop better cryptography. And it's being funded by whatever the business goal of that project is. Same thing with all of these uh, zero-knowledge-based roll-ups on Ethereum. They're spending a lot of money on R&D. Um, but however they advance the cause of cryptography, every other industry, including AI, will be better off for it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to some extent, the one situation I'm describing about creating a chatbot using private data, I think that can already be done using these decentralized tokens that are themselves computing large language models. So there needs to be a front end to kind of like connect all the dots and maybe... There, there's a privacy issue, so I don't know. But I, I think this speaks to a lot of the problems in crypto is that crypto is very complicated. It's like even, it's still, I would say, to be honest, it's still hard 
to buy a single Bitcoin. And by hard, I mean, you know, my parents wouldn't be able to do it, really. Um, they're not going to call up, they're not going to figure out SushiSwap <laughs> and buy a Bitcoin. And Coinbase, which is the best, by far, let's say the best exchange of crypto right now, is so bad compared with, with like, I don't know, even like Charles Schwab or Ameritrade. Like there's no customer service. There's no things go wrong and and they're the best. So all that's the opportunity in crypto is that A, the entire infrastructure has to improve to make it easier for people to use. And then as you get more users, there's going to be more people buying it and then more, more opportunities and more projects and more and then and then the virtuous cycle will begin. We don't quite have that virtuous cycle yet. I think what's got to happen with crypto as a long-term catalyst is what happened with Linux, which is that Linux itself is unusable at a at a corporate enterprise level. And yet, why is it the case that almost every device operating system now is based on Linux? It's because there were commercial companies that were basically in, intermediaries between corporate players who wanted to use a simple operating system. And then a company like Red Hat, which says, no problem, we'll make it for you and we'll manage it for you. You never have to deal with the, the guts of Linux itself. We'll take care of the whole thing. And those front ends have not yet happened on crypto, but are necessary. That's a great point. And I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur who's trying to build a solution to this. But there is this paradox at the heart of evolving crypto, which is that at the protocol layer, you know, at the Bitcoin or Ethereum layer, for it to do what it's supposed to do, which is to be decentralized, it has to be this, in some ways, horrific anything goes kind of infrastructure where like you could get hacked, you make a mistake and you could lose all your money and there's no way to get it back. Right. It has to work that way. You cannot have a, you know, undo button or chargebacks on decentralized infrastructure because then they're not it's not decentralized anymore. So that's crypto being crypto, but then from the user's perspective, it's terrifying. Right. Um so but imagine the front end where oh, you need to buy some Akash. Well, okay, they sell it on you want to call someone, you want to just call your broker and say, you know, buy me 50 tokens of Akash. And then the broker's like, well, I could get some on Coinbase, but I could also get some on PancakeSwap and SushiSwap and Kraken. And they kind of, you never see what's going on behind the scenes. Just like it is right now with the brokerage. You don't know, when you buy shares or something, you don't know what exchange you're buying it on. Like you might be buying on the NASDAQ or NASDAQ OTC or some weird options market. So there just needs to be human interfaces to some extent, which is which is not the complete dream of crypto from the technology side, but I think that's what makes it usable. I agree. I'm also not a, I think these purists that will tell you, so there's a smaller and smaller corner of crypto that still holds on to this radical decentralized dream that I never subscribe to that. Like everybody will have their own self-hosted wallet and we'll own all of our assets in a non-custodial way, which then those people are now outraged that there's going to be ETFs, which I think is kind of hilarious because if you own Bitcoin, you should really want there to be a Bitcoin ETF. But Yeah, you want to make it easy for grandma and grandpa in Indianapolis, nothing against Indianapolis. You want to make it easy for those people to buy a Bitcoin. Otherwise, 
How is it going to be used? Like these people, this is what people never, by the way, this happened with the internet. So I mentioned 1992. That's when um, I believe AOL opened up the floodgates so that their members, you know, AOL mm. wasn't on the internet, right. but they opened up the floodgates. I think it was 92 or 91 where their users could use Usenet, which was a subset of the internet oh. involving news groups. And I remember, um, the most tech people I knew were like storming into my office. Like, can you believe this? Like AOL, we're going to have like, you know, these idiots on our message boards and they, and people were like planning to do an internet 2.0. That was in discussion. Like, you know, to, to, to a place where quote unquote, we can all hang out without being bothered by those AOL, you know, idiots. I didn't know this. I, I remember when I started using AOL, there was like the 12 things you could do. 11 of them were just on their servers, like their their newsrooms and their games and their e-commerce. But then there was like the 12th tab was World Wide Web. Yeah. And, and you would click and a browser would open up. And like at the time, I had no idea that really like that's the internet. Yeah. Or, or that's the part of the internet that'll matter in 5, 10, 20 years. Um which I think should be a stark warning for all of these corporate people working on their enterprise blockchain and private blockchains and stuff like that. Yeah, like, that's but, not the future. But but looking at that as a historical example, that shows why the rise of crypto is an eventuality. AOL was a centralized network. Mm. Internet was decentralized. And money right now is centralized and there's all sorts of problems with that. But as just like with the internet, as the customer service arrived, as people became comfortable with it, as it became easier to build a website and easier to log on no matter where you are, then the usage went up exponentially. It wasn't exponential until that happened. And then, you know, short while later, it reached a billion users, which, you know, crypto is on the way towards as well. But I, I do think there's an entrepreneurial opportunity with, you know, creating some convenient, user front ends that are fully regulated. You don't have to worry about taxes and the law. Like now there's these new tax laws involving crypto, which again, people view negatively. Like if you if you sell uh, crypto and make $10,000, you have to report it to the IRS. It's, it's it, this is, but this is not an unusual type of law. It, it show to me, it shows that the government, including the IRS is taking crypto as a legitimate form of, it's, it's assuming crypto is a little legitimate form of payment uh, like when it, when you take $10,000 cash out of the bank, the bank reports it to the IRS. If you bring $10,000 into the country from another country, you have to report it. So the IRS is aware. If you win more than $10,000 in a casino, you report it. So the IRS is aware. Now, finally, crypto is being regulated in the same way as the dollar. Uh, and everyone's like agitated. Like, what does this mean? Are they trying to stop crypto? No, they're actually opening it with the, the same open arms that the government does with all other forms of currency now. Yes and no. I'll only I'll halfway agree with you. We've certainly come a long way from the point where most people in governments would just you know, five years ago they'd probably be at the people at the IRS who would say, "Who cares? It's all going to zero anyway." Yeah. Um, but the danger is when governments and regulators say, "Well, we already have rules, so we'll just treat crypto according to those rules," and they don't take That's into account what makes crypto special. So. One of the reasons we have all of these um, cash reporting rules, whether it's casinos, bank withdrawals, is because cash is completely untraceable. Uh, crypto is traceable. It's pseudonymous, but it's traceable. So I think 
there's going to be this chaotic period in the middle where um, the powers that be try to say, you know, like Gary Gensler has been doing, like, oh, well, you know, we have the 1930 securities <laughs> laws and the 1940s SEC, uh, sorry, the Supreme Court rulings, and that's all I need to know to determine what's a security. That's nonsense. It's deliberate nonsense that's meant to hurt and hold back the industry. Um, and there's the tax version of this as well. There's the anti-money laundering version of this. I think the chaotic period will be the industry pushes back and says, wait a minute, like this token that's part investment, part fan club, um, you know, part meme is not the same as the shares in Apple. It's preposterous to treat it as such. So we need new rules. Um, and then the same thing will happen with the traceability that like, hey, you have a transparent universal ledger that gives you a lot of information about who is doing what. Maybe in a world where that exists, you don't need me to surrender every bit of personal data every time I want to open a bank or brokerage account. Right, because your point is, your point is, is that just like my paycheck, I don't have to report every single time I get paid because the banks, because it's in the system, the banks do it. Your your point is that because it is a traceable system to some extent, then it is different from cash laws. And I agree with that, but I do think it is hard to wrap your head around it since it's also it's a global payment system. Um, That's so right. who's tracing what becomes the question. Like the IRS doesn't have the capability really to, to trace this, so they will kind of want it to be more transparent than that. So I think that's an argument that will be ongoing. Yeah, and, and the IRS is actually um, very sophisticated on this. In fact, some of the major busts of uh, people, you know, the, like the multi-billion dollar attempted money launderings on chain, um, if you look at the court documents, it's IRS investigators that helped. Is that the one where I dated the woman who was involved in that? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. And that was your ex's undoing was partly fueled by an expert at the IRS who was really good at using on-chain forensic tools. Well, good for um, that guy. <laughs> but the global nature of it is it's good. We want a global financial system. You know, when US government officials tell me that, well, that's not going to work for us, my response is I say it respectfully, but I'm like, too bad. Like the world doesn't exist to make your job easy. And in fact, part of the reason the rest of the world is increasingly moving to adopt crypto is because it reduces the power that the U.S. government has over how financial regulation is done everywhere. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
This plus your mention of Gary Gensler earlier segues into current events. Yes, I think the a the weaponization of the dollar this past year, for good or for bad, has turned countries away from always relying on the dollar as kind of the global reserve currency. I think also central banks are looking for better ways to do payments. I mean, the SWIFT wiring system is 51 years old, something like that. It's it's an antique already. It's funny, I actually ran into the creator of it a few weeks ago. I was in Amsterdam and he was at the same, we're, we were both observing a chess tournament. Huh. And the chess tournament, he used to organize a chess tournament called the, the SWIFT Chess Tournaments. And I always just thought, that was a cool name for a chess tournament. And I say, so what do you, what did you do for a living when you were sponsoring all these chess tournaments? And he's like, oh, I created this swift wiring system. <laughs> and I had no idea. It, like my worlds converged. And so I started asking him all these questions and he agreed. It was kind of an antique, but at the same time, he wasn't a hundred percent believer in crypto because he's loyal to his antique. So. Yeah. Not surprising. Um, yeah. So, but- so, so, but like, so all these catalysts are happening, you know, dollars, uh, you know, people don't like the dollar in other countries. Inflation, the dollar has to get debased at some point just because of all, you have to pay down this debt somehow unless the economy like grows too fast. So all this, everything's in place for crypto to be a new global infrastructure for finance. What's going on with Bitcoin ETFs? We got this report yesterday from Matrixport saying that, A, the SEC is not just going to roll over. And this is what the report says. They're all Democrats, so they kind of like don't like crypto for that reason. I'm not sure I totally agree with that. And 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 what the concerning part with this report is that the guy is known to be bullish on crypto in general. So everybody got concerned. Oh, this bullish guy says ETFs aren't going to happen. Although he didn't he didn't say they weren't going to happen. He says it's going to be a Q2 thing, which drastically changes how people have been interpreting this report for one thing. But like what else what what's really going on, you think? Well, I'm particularly on that all the serious people I know who know about crypto, Wall Street and ETFs dismiss that as a non-serious report. All the evidence otherwise points to the fact that approval is imminent. When I don't know if that means this week, next week, there's various deadlines that are relevant here, but uh, you've had uh, all of the uh, dozen or so companies that are uh, trying to launch ETFs constantly meeting with the SEC. This Even week, over the holiday season. I mean, the last yeah. amendments on, I think, BlackRock's ETF were filed with the SEC on December 29th. Like people, and you know they're not just doing it in a vacuum. Like their success rate is 99.999% for ETFs. Like you, you know they're in touch with the SEC. They're not going to make fools of themselves here. Yeah, and also it, it was one thing if uh, Gary Gensler is taking on a relatively small crypto company like Grayscale. It's another thing if he's going to sort of stick it suddenly to BlackRock and Fidelity and Franklin Templeton. Right, and to put it in perspective, when the financial crisis was happening, 2008, 2009, the government didn't know how to deal with unwinding trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities that companies like AIG and the banks had. So guess who they hired to do it? BlackRock. They're not going to screw over BlackRock. I mean, BlackRock is essentially the government's financial infrastructure. <laughs> so I, I believe also in... Uh, in uh... 2020, during the pandemic, when the Federal Reserve decided to bail out everyone and everything, 
one of the things that they did was they started for the first time sort of bailing out the corporate debt market and the junk bond market. And if I recall correctly, they did it through BlackRock. In fact, I mean, we can look this up, but I think the Fed actually was buying a BlackRock bond ETF as a means of propping things up. That could so, be that could be like if you're I mean essentially then like the government owes BlackRock. They're not <laughs> it's not like the SEC is now going to reject BlackRock and the next time a bailout's needed you know, BlackRock's just going to, you know, wave their hands in and not expect anything. Like this ETF's going to happen. The question is, is Gary Gensler going to pull one more trick and say, well, it's, I got to wait now. Uh, and again, like all the, all the filings have been done and people were filing up to December 29th, up until the last possible day because they want it to happen now. <laughs> yeah, I don't see that happening. And also let's not forget that the uh, SEC lost a lawsuit so they're also to under to grayscale. So they're also under pressure um, to comply with the court's findings. So I think now we can assume there's going to be an ETF. Uh, and the more interesting question is, what does that mean for Bitcoin going forward? And 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 just to ask again, like you know, I've been go, I've been in the group, and I still firmly believe this based on everything I've been reading outside of this matrix port report, I firmly believe it's going to happen, you know, basically any day at this point or within the next, you know, one week, two weeks, a lot of people expect it by January 10th, the prediction markets like poly market as January 15th as the date. But, uh, but there's an 88%. It's basically the, 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 People gambling on this say there's an 88% chance it happens by January 15th or earlier. So, mm -hmm. so again, would you say that's your view as well that a yes. Bitcoin ETF happened you know, and, and we should just ignore this report that caused that flash crash yesterday? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think it's inevitable in the first half of January. Um, but importantly, that does not mean that the price is going to go up. I'm not saying it's going to go down. I don't know. Um, I'm uh, I'm enough of a reform trader to know that I should not try to call the short-term machinations in the crypto market. Uh, but I, I do think it's interesting as to, well, it might be worth talking about for a minute why a American Bitcoin ETF is believed to be such a big deal. Um because on the one hand, you could say that there are now, unlike, say, three, four years ago, there are many places where uh, people could get exposure to crypto, um, whether it's exchanges like Coinbase, you could get it through PayPal, Robinhood, uh, Fidelity, uh, there are private funds, and then there were sort of like this ETF-like products like Grayscale, the GBTC product, but there's couple of important things that even I've had to get educated on in the past year. One is that there are many uh, legal or bureaucratic barriers for institutions or investment advisors to access Bitcoin more directly through those sources that I mentioned. Of, of course, like in their charters, almost every mutual fund's got to buy listed New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ stocks. Right. Um, and then there's also the question of it's currently difficult to access Bitcoin in something like an IRA or a retirement account. But 
almost any retirement account will let you buy a iShares ETF that happens to be backed by Bitcoin. Um, there's the question of registered investment advisors who control some trillions worth of dollars of assets. They don't like to tell their clients to go things that are outside of their purview. Right. Uh, right. So you know, previously, if a client asked an RIA, say, hey, I want to get crypto exposure. I mean, sure, they could tell them, like, well, go open a Coinbase account and buy some. But you don't want to do that because that's no longer money that you're technically managing for them. But again, a uh, NASDAQ-listed or New York Stock Exchange ETF, almost any RIA will be able to easily get their clients in it. Uh, and I'll, I'll throw a final one out there that I've discovered through actually some of my personal work and the consulting that I've done. There are many large American hedge funds that would like to get involved with crypto, particularly Bitcoin, just because you know if you man if you have some billions of dollars in assets under management, you're not going to be like trading some shitcoin that doesn't have a lot of liquidity. Um, you want to go with something that's mature, established, and liquid. And you know, Bitcoin and maybe ETH are the only coins that qualify. And these funds have not. You know, today they can have an institutional account at a Coinbase. There are prime brokers that they could use to get direct action, but the, and they're sophisticated enough and they have the right people to figure out custody and trading and liquidity and et cetera. But what's been holding them back is the fear of how the SEC might respond. Not because it's illegal, even Gary Gensler and his reign of terror has generally said Bitcoin's okay because it's a commodity. But I know from personal experience talking to people who work at these funds, they tell me, look, yeah, we can go you know, set up a deal with a custodian and exchange and start trading Bitcoin. But then we would have to report that. And we don't want the SEC to use that as an excuse to come after us. That's a good point. But also, any problem like that is why a Bitcoin ETF is so great because that means just, and you're just talking about American hedge fund managers, which is admittedly there, there are some huge hedge funds out there, but it's a, still a drop in the global wealth that's out there. But they're going to start buying Bitcoin only when the ETF is approved. So unlike a lot of news where there's run-ups in anticipation, and that certainly happened with Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's anticipation. So speculators have been running up no serious buying has occurred yet because the the hedge funds and we'll talk about the sovereign wealth funds in a second they haven't started buying they physically cannot buy yet yeah i i yeah where we are on the question of what's already priced in or not i don't know i mean, we we have had a massive run in prices particularly bitcoin in the last few months in anticipation of this etf so just basic market theory would tell you that some of it's priced in. Um, but now is it possible that there is a wall of liquidity just waiting billions or even more of dollars to come in as soon as it's available? Yes. Um, but is it also possible that there are other people who've bought waiting to sell to those people? Uh, I may or may not be one of them. That's another option. And then the other thing I wonder is, I, I do agree that a year from now, this ETF is going to be a widely used, very successful product. I just don't know if that means that 
tons of money is going to go into it the day after it's listed or it's just going to be a slow process across the span of weeks and months? I mean, look, you flew around the world for Citigroup talking to countries or or extremely wealthy people about their appetite for for crypto. Like in the Middle East, if if you're Dubai or Saudi Arabia sitting on, I don't know, whatever it is, a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund, just like the hedge funds, you're going to think, okay, well, maybe I'll put 1% of the assets into Bitcoin. But if everyone thought like that, you're talking about at least, at least, you know, many, if the, depending on how fast the buying occurs, we're talking about many multiples higher for, for Bitcoin. And by the way, I should mention, you and I both are more into Ethereum. Like I wrote to my readers a, a year and four months ago, selling all my Bitcoin, replacing with Ethereum. So that's just Bitcoin though, could go up several multiples, it seems. But, but what do you think? Do you think that's possible from just the wealth that you've spoken to personally? I think it, in, in the long run, it's inevitable. I actually, my theory of Bitcoin specifically is eventually it becomes everybody's backup, you know, break yeah. glass in case of emergency asset. Um, the questions we would have to answer though, I agree with you that yes, there are these foreign sovereign wealth funds or pension funds or whoever that have a lot of money and will want some exposure. I don't know how much they're dependent on a U.S. listed ETF to get it. There but are ETFs. They, I would say they're worried about the same things though the hedge funds are. They don't want to do something illegal where or or that's going to get regulated so that the way they buy bought their crypto will be. Confi- they just don't know. They're they're unsophisticated in some ways, and they 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 want to just do it by the book. And the book is in America is the SEC. The other thing is, does some employee at the do you know the Saudi Arabia or the Yemen sovereign wealth fund want to use Sushi Swap and then screw up their wallet and everything gets lost? That guy's not just going to get fired. He's going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> I- I agree. But I, what I was saying is like there are ETFs in many other countries already and other kinds of securitized products. Um, they're even like a lot of the big banks already have, you know, they're exclusive and limited, but they have like you know, not so liquid funds that are backed by Bitcoin. Obviously, a US regulated, US listed, dollar denominated ETF will be the cream of the crop. Um, we and will see how and much- pass the test that has not yet been passed, which is, there always still is the question. I mean, I heard it yesterday when that Matrix report came out. Suddenly, people on Twitter were saying, "See, I told you, Bitcoin's going to be banned. It's going to zero. There's still that small group, and so again, the you don't want the king of whatever yelling at you. How can you? How could you have bought Bitcoin? It's not even regulated yet. But once this ETF's approved, those questions are over. That's true. Uh, and the other underrated thing is um, the other financial infrastructure that can then get built on top of the ETF. Uh, so, for example, derivatives. Um, no mm. one, you know, Bitcoin, as large and liquid as it already is as an asset class, does not really have a good regulated derivative market around it. Most of the options that trade are over the counter, and there's a lot of counterparty risk for whoever trades it. Uh, the 
the CME futures product is not a great product for various reasons. So you could also argue that you know how like the spiders and QQ ETFs have this massive options market on top of them. Um, via an ETF, we might finally get that for Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a decent there's a DeFi market um, for derivatives. There are many, but to your point, to like. You know, whoever doesn't want to get yelled at by the king right. for using the decentralized version. Also, importantly about Bitcoin, because the Bitcoin blockchain is very limited in what it can do, there's no, there's virtually no native Bitcoin DeFi, right? You don't have smart contracts on the Bitcoin blockchain. So it's almost impossible to do decentralized finance on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin as an asset does get integrated into DeFi on Ethereum and in other blockchains, but those are bridged or derivative products that have a lot of risk. Um, so there too, you could say that, I've actually never thought about this before, but Bitcoin lends itself to financialization via the traditional securities markets more than say an Ethereum would, because on Ethereum you could build whatever you want in DeFi. Do you think do you think though once the Bitcoin ETF happens the roadmap um seems to definitely suggest an Ethereum ETF is right afterwards and then people are even talking about things like a, an ETF for Solana and other currencies like that. Do you see do you see that happening? Eventually. Um and there are I, I guess in anticipation of this some of the more minor uh grayscale trust products have been trading at significant premiums. Um, where it gets a little bit more tricky is one, the SEC still holds that almost everything in crypto is an unregulated security. I believe uh, in, in the Coinbase lawsuit or the Binance lawsuit, they, they call Solana or Sol an unregistered security. Which is just ridiculous on that one. I mean, I agree some of them do seem like securities, but not Solana. I think it's mostly just obstructionism and absurdism and history will not remember Mr. Gensler well, if it remembers him at all. But uh, that that does make it harder to then get a ETF. You know, with Bitcoin, the CFTC declared it a commodity long time ago, actually when Gensler was the chair there. Uh, with Ethereum, there have been some questions, but notably, because there are CME futures on ETH and because the SEC has already approved futures-based ETH ETFs, then the logic by which Grayscale won its lawsuit against the SEC also applies to ETH in that Gensler can't come out and say, we're not going to approve a ETH ETF for blah, 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 because then people would say, well, no, the court already ruled that if you approve the futures ETF, you have no logical reason to not approve um, a, a spot ETF. But then for every other coin, the SEC could hold that line if it wanted to. Yeah, no, that's true. And like, look, as you mentioned, Grayscale has a closed-end fund for just ETH, uh, you know, ETH, which is ETHE. That's the stock symbol for it. Disclosure, I, I actually switched out of all my crypto ETH to ETHE when it was trading at a 50% discount to its net asset value, that discount now is closed to basically zero because people are anticipating uh, an ETH, 
They're anticipating Grayscale will become an ETF instead of a close-in fund. Yeah, so I just looked actually. ETHE is trading at a 11% discount as of yesterday's close. So first of all... I mean, it was 51% discount a year ago. On on an all-time great trade. Um, I own a little bit too. Uh, But I believe the... If we wanted to use it as a... uh, if we use the discount to NAV as a proxy for expectation of approval, GBTC is at a 7% discount. Uh, ETHE is a 10 11% discount. So the market is saying, yes, likely conversion, but perhaps not as imminently as the Bitcoin one. Yeah, I mean, the Bitcoin's first and foremost, and that's the one in everyone's mind. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. So, okay, we agree on that. This ETF stuff is, that was kind of like, whatever you call it, fake news from yesterday. Although I still don't know. I mean, that guy's going to be embarrassed if he's wrong. And he's a prominent commentator on crypto. But maybe he figured people won't remember him if he's wrong. And they'll they'll praise him forever if he's right. right. Kind of like a Nouriel Rabini in 2008 situation, Dr. Doom. <laughs> Um, <laughs> what was that joke about Rubini that he's predicted nine of the last two recessions or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Oh, I mean, he's the, he always, his thing is, every time you would talk to him, the market's going to go down 20% tomorrow. But of course, it never never happened until by the way, COVID. He's also now famous for predicting the demise of crypto, testifying in Congress as to how it was all bad and going to zero. And then as of a couple of weeks ago, he had a... Uh, a blog post or op-ed in the Financial Times talking about his so-called stablecoin that he's now developing. Uh, it's kind of a nonsensical idea because it's basically like a mutual fund that invests in eight different things and he's calling it a stablecoin and it'll be appealing to people in emerging markets and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's the one thing that's been fun in the past couple of weeks is all the people that were once certain that the demise of crypto is imminent having to publicly walk that back. Yeah, I I agree. But you know what, though? I have yet to see someone... Well, this is not true. I have started seeing people recognize the ones who have been bullish on it all along. Um, You know, but it's it's not as much as when things go down. Everyone's like, see, I told you. And well, well, famously, Jim Cramer came around uh, just this week to the chagrin of yesterday in the same hour as the flash crash, right? Which which some people actually blamed him, like, oh man, you know, Cramer helped create the bottom by telling people to sell everything last November, (laughs) and now he he might be helping create the top by um, coming around. I actually think Cramer's, you know, 
He's a super smart guy. One of the smartest guys I've ever met in all of the financial industry. And yeah, he's, he's the problem he has is every time he's on TV, he's got to have a new opinion. Right. And so that's difficult to be right a thousand percent of the time on 500 opinions a year. So people hold on to the negative ones and completely forget the many positive uh, things that have worked out that he said. But um, uh, let's talk about another major catalyst, which has been sort of under noticed in this ETF news, which is that on December 31st, Vitalik Buterin, the founder of or initial creator of Ethereum, he laid out the product roadmap for Ethereum. And although we've all kind of known the roadmap, a lot of it is in 2024. Like, you know, and there's the verge, the splurge, the scourge. I don't know. There's all these things that rhyme with urge. And it's the, the net goal, though, is to make Ethereum be able to process more transactions than Visa per minute and at cheaper fees. So, you know, with more applications that you can do. So, you know, and adding more security, what you were talking about earlier, like adding zero knowledge proofs and all this kind of stuff. So that that's pretty impressive. I think that's actually long-term a bigger catalyst. Ultimately, you need use cases and right. you need users. You don't need just speculators. So ultimately, to me, that's a bigger long-term catalyst. I, I actually think the ETF is in some ways overrated uh, as the catalyst for why crypto has rallied so much in the past year. I mean, sure, it's, it's a good meme. Billions of dollars will come in through it, whether next week or next year. That's all great. But I think the most important thing is for people like you and I, who have always believed that crypto is the inevitable future, then the last year has shown significant strides in maturation. And the scaling aspect of it is a big one um, because you know, Vitalik is just highlighting what comes next. But let's, let's take a moment to reflect on what's already happened just in the past year, which is that this layer two roll-up centric vision of how Ethereum would scale is live. Uh, there are roll-ups now with a lot of users, a lot of activity. There are days actually where there are more users on the roll-ups than there are on the Ethereum mainnet, which you would expect because it's it's cheaper uh, and faster and, and made for for like the every man or woman. Um, and not only have these roll-ups launched, um, they're starting to mature what they do. One of the big improvements expected this year that Vitalik alluded to is changing sort of like the fee market on Ethereum layer one in order to make it even cheaper for rollups to operate. So that's already happening. This is something that's been on the roadmap for years and it's real now. We saw the launch of a very particular rollup base, which Coinbase, the company, um, developed, which is actually very exciting. Because Coinbase has, I don't know, over 100 million global customers. It also has all the other infrastructure needed that when combined with their own roll-up, it could really take us to sort of that like AOL moment that you were alluding to with, you know, they have a wallet and they have all sorts of other services. They have partnerships. They have people whose job it is to think about the UI UX of crypto and you have a lot more flexibility with the design of a roll-up. So I believe Coinbase already announced this. If not, they should or they will. But 
with stable coins, which is the other big thing that in the past year, as far as maturation um, is concerned, they've really began to take off in certain countries. Um, you could have a world where on its roll-up, Coinbase says, hey, anybody who has a Coinbase wallet has USDC, which is the stable coin that they're a partial issuer of, up to $1,000, you get free instant payments, gasless payments, as we call them. So now, suddenly, this infrastructure becomes a rival to a PayPal, but on a global scale, using crypto infrastructure in a wallet where somebody can be sending dollars back and forth, but they could also be investing in ETH, participating in DeFi, collecting NFTs, concert tickets, whatever. Um, so I think we're at the point now where you can actually take a step back and be like, wow, we're, we're finally getting all of the infrastructure in place for mass adoption to show up. Yeah, I agree. And I think this has been a critical barrier to getting to that billion user moment. Um, like you mentioned, Coinbase is 100 million users. Let's say there's another 100 million outside of Coinbase. That's 200 million. But again, with the ETF, there'll be a lot more users or, or owners of, of crypto in some form or other. But then with Ethereum and its and the various projects actually starting to become usable and used by real customers, I think that's that's basically the moment where crypto takes over. And we're... I don't know where we are on the tipping point for that, but this year, next year, it could e this could easily happen. And that's the real tipping point. I agree with you. The ETFs overhyped, except for the fact that as a, as a speculator, it's reasonable to speculate that a Bitcoin ETF will drastically increase the price of Bitcoin, which of course increases the price of all the tokens. And we've right. seen that happen. So the other tokens go up much more than than Bitcoin. And uh, so I think it's reasonable to bet on that just as a speculator. But what's going to really keep it going is when people start using it. And we have not we have not even seen, we're not even in inning one of the use cases, I believe. Agreed. And we should also give a shout out since we're talking about what's changed to Solana. Um, because as a layer one sort of Ethereum competitor, uh, Solana has a very unique approach to scaling and consensus. Uh, and a lot of people, including me, had sort of written it off for dead uh, a year ago because one, it had these series of outages. Like there's one thing you can't do as a blockchain is to just go down because decentralization is supposed to be far more resilient than central infrastructure. And then Solana was also very closely affiliated for various reasons with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. But it had a passionate community of entrepreneurs and developers who believed in it. Um, it has a founder who I actually really respect because I find him to be very open-minded and humble in ways that most crypto people are not. And it survived. And suddenly, as of a few months ago, I mean, the manifestation of it was that the Soul token has been one of the best performing tokens. But I think importantly... Um, it showed that like, hey, you know, perseverance works. And if you have unique infrastructure that has a special value prop, which Solana does have, almost every other Ethereum competitor, I think, is going to go away because yeah. their whole shtick was, well, we're more scalable Ethereum. But now Ethereum itself is scaling. So you serve no purpose. Solana is just architecturally fundamentally different. I'm not 100% sold that it will um, withstand the test of time. But 
it's great that it's there. And I think the, the way it survived, and also if you've, I don't know if you've ever used it, but from a UI UX perspective, using Solana is just a lot more like the more traditional internet experience that you and I are both saying crypto is going to have to develop. So that's, it's been an exciting thing and it's really exciting to see what gets built on there in the next year or two. Yeah. And, and I do think like, you know, I recommend in my writing these various tokens and even a year ago, I normally wouldn't have recommended Solana because I didn't personally know any projects being built with Solana. I mean, you would hear about it, but it wasn't like anything exciting to me, but just, and I was just lucky in this, just as I felt like I needed some diversification to Ethereum. So I basically recommended Solana, Cardano, which I don't believe in at all, but it's still moved. And right. um, Hedera, HBAR, uh, because that which one- I actually, don't believe in at all. <laughs> yeah, but you, I actually met people using it for games because it's so scalable right now. But I agree with you, as Ethereum completes its product map, the use for for it goes to goes close to zero. So unless it's already entrenched somehow in some projects, so I doubt. I, I haven't looked into it in years, but um, it was a private blo a permissioned blockchain, which to me is just a really bad database. There were grandiose plans that in the future they would make it permissionless. I doubt they've done that. But anyway, neither here or there. Um, I, I think competition is good, as you know, with technology. While there's a tendency eventually to coalesce around one or two standards. It's not always clear ahead of time which the better standard is. Competition um, helps the market sort that out. So I think it's great that we have viable technology in Solana, which is in what we call the monolithic blockchain, like just put everything on the layer one and figure out how to make it as scalable as possible. That's one philosophy. And then we have the what we call modular philosophy on Ethereum with layer twos and layer threes. Maybe the future is actually both of them just for different use cases. But there is like an excitement and vibrancy now that I think ultimately has also translated to uh, token prices. Yeah, and I think, again, the product roadmap with Ethereum, which includes sharding with the Verge and then the Purge and the Splurge, like I think there's a lot of features that are going to make the need for these other tokens that aren't as maybe they aren't as safe or secure in various ways. Just there's going to be no reason not to use Ethereum unless somehow fees, you know, rise higher than expected. But um, which, speaking of which, we have the having coming up in a few months. Everybody, yes. there's a lot of I statistically, I think it's total BS. Like any anticipation going into the the having because we just we don't really know. It, it, that it's quote unquote correlated to Bitcoin going up, but you only have four instances. So who knows? There's no real evidence that the having means anything. Um, other things have been going on in the world that has caused Bitcoin going up. Like right now, anticipation for an ETF, but but people are also arguing anticipation for the having. But when the having happens, and let's say it happens again and again and again, do transaction fees for Bitcoin? start going up a lot more because miners aren't making as much money. No, because one of the very interesting design choices in how Bitcoin works uh, is that the one thing that always stays constant is capacity. So you could, you know, mining could go up 
10x the amount that is today or it could fall by 90%. That impacts the security of the network. It does nothing to improve the capacity of it just because the protocol has an effectively hard-coded limit on what the size of a block is. And more or less mining does not change that. Even though the even though the rewards get cut in half? Yeah. So here's why the halving in a way could be problematic. Um, you know, I remember like the halvings when I first started paying attention eight years ago, that one. And then even the one four years ago, they were interesting because like they were great advertising for what crypto represents to people who don't normally pay attention to it. That was like it would, you know, in 2020, it was actually perfect because that having happened just as every central bank on earth was going into overdrive, printing money because of COVID. So from a mimetic marketing standpoint, to be like, there's only one currency on the planet now that's ratcheting down its inflation while every other currency is exploding it. But at a certain point, Bitcoin inflation right now is already very low. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, to go even lower actually becomes a cause for concern because of what you said about minor profitability. And it matters because the hash rate, the aggregate amount of mining is at an all-time high. But there will be one day in this spring where minor revenues effectively get cut in half from one block to the other. And if a bunch of them turn off their machines and go away, that's not going to do anything for capacity, but it's going to be bad for security. Right, because uh, you like a lot of miners because it's more reason to believe the validity of every transaction. Right. And, and so then maybe this will be the final interesting catalyst that goes underrated. People have been talking about what to do about the future of Bitcoin, because unlike in Ethereum, where the transaction fees make up most of the income that they're not miners anymore, we call them validators or stakers, but almost all the money they make is from fees and something related called MEV. With Bitcoin, historically, the inflation has been 80, 90% of minor revenue. And there's been this question out there for the last couple of years, which is, what happens as that trends towards zero? Because right now the inflation rate is six and a quarter bitcoins per block, uh, which is what no, three hundred thousand dollars, something like that. But after this having, it goes to three and an eighth, and then another having, and it's like, wait, if, if miners are making less than two bitcoins per block, that's significantly lower revenue. So the one thing that would make up for it would be a significant pickup in fees. And that's right, that's, what, a, that's my worry. Right. So we've already had that, though, because of uh, ordinals and inscriptions. I don't know how closely you followed this, but this has been a very controversial and massive development in the world of Bitcoin in the past year. And basically through a sort of like a jerry-rigging, MacGyvering kind of process. Smart people have figured out how to embed data into the Bitcoin blockchain, which means you could also issue NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain and even do fungible tokens. Sort of like we have the ERC-20 tokens on Ethereum. They now call them BRC-20 tokens in Bitcoin. And these have jacked up 
fees because it's very expensive to do all of this because Bitcoin's not designed for this, right? And whereas like Ethereum's designed for people to issue fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens, Bitcoin wasn't. So the process of doing it is very fee intensive. And this is really like divided the hardcore Bitcoin community. Because on the one hand, you have people like me who are like, this is great. One, it's experimentation. It's fun. I actually um, took the, uh, the cover of my last book and a hash of the content of it. And I embedded that into the Bitcoin blockchain because <laughs> it is the most decentralized network in the world. And I'm like, now I can't change it. If I do, people could be like, hey, the hashes don't line up. Um, and people are doing all sorts of other interesting things. And people like me, more revenue from miners is good for the security of Bitcoin. The other side are like the hardcore libertarian, hard money, gold buck type of maxis who believe in Bitcoin as money. That's their religion. So to them, this is a form of blasphemy. You know, how dare you um, waste block space on stupid JPEGs when, you know, when the world ends, this is going to be the money that we all use to buy coffee and live off of. And you're now pricing out people in El Salvador who would buy coffee with Bitcoin because the fees are an order of magnitude higher than they were prior to the invention of ordinals. But nobody really takes them seriously. And I think the fact that the Bitcoin economy now has this new source of experimentation, innovation, fees. There have actually been startups that have raised VC money because they plan to do cool things with inscriptions. That's also been an underrated bullish development for Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's that's kind of like, let's say, an easy use case. You don't need a country to say, okay, we're going to use Bitcoin as our currency now. This is just like like you use it. Like, you know, people use this. So again, is there a solution when the when the rewards get too little? I, I don't quite understand how the fees don't go up automatically. Well, the good news now is that I mean, I'm looking right now in the past seven days, Bitcoin has actually generated more fees than Ethereum. That used to not happen at all in recent years, just because you would look at Ethereum and be like, there's a million things to do on Ethereum. They all generate gas fees for the miners or validators. Then you look at Bitcoin and be like, there's literally one thing to do, which is send other people Bitcoin, which has limited utility. It's great to save in Bitcoin, right? But like, no, I don't want to buy coffee with my Bitcoin. I expect it to go up in value. I want to buy right. coffee with you'll, my fiat money. That's you'll be like this, ver this year's version of the uh, pizza for 10,000 Bitcoin guy right. from 10, 13 <laughs> years ago. Indeed. Um, but now it's like, oh, well, we can do all sorts of interesting other things in Bitcoin. And I actually don't think we have yet found the product market fit. As if with everything in crypto, like the DGENs show up and do mostly stupid shit, like NFTs and meme coins and stuff that'll probably end up worthless. But if you say Bitcoin is the most decentralized, resilient network, digital network on planet Earth, and you can now embed whatever information you want, even if it's not financial, into it, then might there be use cases in the future where important contracts, peace oh. treaties, yeah, art. absolutely. Like, look, one of the initial predictions for crypto, for for crypto in general, but Bitcoin in particular, was it's going to replace all contract law, and that was kind of a side benefit of Bitcoin as a currency because of the smart contracts. But it's like what we were talking about earlier. We haven't even begun to see 
you know, use cases in decentralized computing, which essentially makes every supercomputer a slow computer compared to what happens when you have millions of, you know, regular computers processing on a parallel problem. And then we have not seen the use cases for crypto in marketing. So imagine mm -hmm. when every company, like let's say Uber, issues an Uber coin to customers who ride frequently, issues Uber coin to drivers who get high ratings and drive frequently. So that's a form of mining. Uh, and then you can use Ubercoin later to buy rides. So you borrow from future profits to do marketing right now by issuing these coins, which by the way, if those coins become part of the ecosystem of every product out there, plus they're fungible through exchanges, that, that actually does a lot to change the inflation equation because you're not just talking about dollars buying goods, but other currencies. So I think I think that's going to be an enormous multi-trillion dollar use case that has not even not even one dollar has been spent on that yet. Maybe one, there are brands and projects playing around with it, but I agree with you. I think it's the future of everything. I don't know. One of the things I'm very excited to see is there's going to be differentiation. You know, like we might have a world where there's Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ethereum Layer Two, Solana, etc., and then the market will decide which one is. Um, more appropriate for the use case. And I actually think part of the calculation will be like, how vital and important is the activity? Because some things, like I, I foresee a future where a, if there's a future you know, breakaway nation like America was and they need a declaration of independence, that will be embedded into Bitcoin. Because this is like the founding document or constitution for a new country that you want to be in the most decentralized thing in the world. And if it costs you $500 worth of Bitcoin to do that, it, it's almost better that it's yeah. expensive, right? But then if you're like Uber or doing coupons that are NFTs that also have some art associated with them, well, that you can do on a layer three because it doesn't need that much security and decentralization. It's still better than existing in Uber's database. There are benefits and there's going to be this self-selected market segmentation uh, based on decentralization and security versus cost. Yeah, and, and look, again, I, I agree. I don't think we've even seen the potential. Kind of just like with AI, we haven't even fully seen the potential. I would say AI is just ahead, though, in terms of consumer awareness. And, mm -hmm. you know, people could, even if you've never tried ChatGPT, you could try it in one, one minute from now, whereas Bitcoin, you can't. Um, it requires some knowledge, which that starts to end the day that Bitcoin ETF happens, which I think is why it's, it's in part why it's so important. But Omid Malakon, as always, I learned so much talking to you. You're a valuable resource in this whole area. Um, let me say the names of your books because I can never remember them in part because the books are amazing. Titles, not as good. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, I, what do I know? I told, so Jocko Willink, you know who he is? Um, yeah. Yeah, so Jocko Willink, he's a regular on the podcast whenever he has a, a book out. And I once, I once said, oh, so what's your, this is like years ago. I said, what's the name of your next book? And he said, Dichotomy of Leadership. And I'm like, oh, that's a horrible name. But of course, it came out, it was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. And Jocko did say, see, I told you so, but at least he didn't kill me. <laughs> so <laughs> Wish he could. Omid yeah. Malakon, author of Re-Architecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. 
And then, okay, this is a better title. Uh, Malachan, the story of the blockchain, a beginner's guide to the technology nobody understands. I like I that will, title. I will give you the uh, the right to name my next book, James. Cause... <laughs> no, the story of blockchains, that's pretty good. Uh, what else? What, what's your next book? Uh, do you have a next book planned? No, no, nothing planned yet. What about you? I do, but it's on a completely different topic, which my listeners have heard about. So, But I'll tell you offline. Okay. So I've been working hard on the next project, which is very different from all my other book projects before. Cool. But thanks once again, Omid, and hopefully you'll come back and we'll, we'll do this a lot more. Would love to. Always enjoy it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Omid. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.